0: Welcome to an Independence Day weekend special edition of The Sporting Life. Over the next hour, we will revisit some of Jeremy's most memorable conversations from 2020, including Brianna Stewart, Roger Craig, Adam Carolla, and Rod Carew. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schaap. Welcome to a
1: special Fourth of July Best of
0: edition of The Sporting
1: Life. We'll be revisiting some of our most memorable conversations on the show so far this year. We begin with a conversation from January with one of the most accomplished basketball players ever, Brianna Stewart. When we spoke, Kobe Bryant had just died, and Brianna was preparing for the 2020 Olympics, which have now been postponed until 2021. It was an emotional game. Obviously, you guys were playing UConn, the U.S. national team playing UConn shortly after the death of Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gigi, who wanted to play at UConn. What, what was the atmosphere like, Brianna? Um, you know, you you said it. It was
2: it was very emotional. Um, you know, when the news broke the day before, nobody wanted to believe it, and everybody was was really in shock. And um, even uh, the morning of game day was was tough you know, because Suteran was very silent. Um, Kobe was a person that affected, you know, a lot of people. I mean, everyone on our national team, for sure. Um, Everyone on the current UConn team, because Gigi was such a a big supporter and and they went to a lot of games. But, you know, we knew that day was going to be hard. Um, But the biggest thing that we could do and and the, the way we could respect and carry on Kobe's legacy the most was play and uh, play at the highest level we could.
1: We're speaking with Brianna Stewart, the four-time NCAA champion, the WNBA champion, the WNBA MVP, and Olympic gold medalist who is hoping, oh, in about eight or nine months to win a second Olympic gold medal. The United States trying to win, I believe, its seventh consecutive gold medal in women's basketball. Um, You play... In the WNBA, Brianna, you play overseas, you play for Team USA, all these you won the FIBA World Cup last year as well in 2018. And you were the MVP of that tournament. When you have so many gold medals and championships already, what what would another Olympics title mean to you? Um, I
2: mean, I think another Olympic gold would um it would mean a lot to me. I think, you know, the last Olympics I was the youngest one there. I was just out of college. Um, a lot wasn't expected from me and um you know, I didn't I didn't really play that much. I was more so there as a sponge and uh to be prepared for the next one and now, you know, we're four years later and the next one is coming up and my role is different uh with the team and I'm just looking forward to to being out there and trying to make an impact and making sure that uh, we win the seventh straight gold medal and Sue and Diana
1: uh, win their fifth gold medal. You were saying last week, I saw you quoted, um, saying that you don't know how to play 70%. You only know 100% or zero. And you're still in the process of... Um, getting back into complete playing shape after what happened nine months ago. So how are you going to be able to not push too hard? Um, I mean, I think now
2: it's, it's not about not pushing too hard. I think, you know, when I was a few months back, like I would be able to go on the court, but I could only go 70%, which is very difficult because like, how do you know what 70% is? Um, but now when I'm on the court, like I, I can, I'm, I'm going to play my hardest, you know, I'm going to go at a hundred percent. Uh, and now it's just about, uh, making sure that I have a, a grace period to kind of get back into the rhythm of things. And, and my minutes are limited in both games and practices. And, um, you know, every day gets a little bit better. Every week, gets a little bit better. And, you know i I still have to go through the the process of getting back you know now i 'm on the court and I can play, but um, it's just a different part of the rehab if that makes
1: sense, Maya Moore. Uh, who preceded you at UConn, one of the great players in UConn history, great player in the WNBA with Minnesota. She announced last week that she's not going to play in the upcoming WNBA season again. She's not going to be part of the Olympic qualifying process because she's committed to working for social justice reform and in particular championing the case of one man she believes was wrongly convicted in Missouri and wrongly imprisoned. Well, what is it? What is you know, as somebody who knows Maya more, what do you think about that and and her decision not to be part of part of the game for the at least the upcoming year?
2: I mean, I think that you know Maya um, she realizes that there's more to life than just basketball, and you know, as a person who's had a very successful career, she's invested in in something um, that also takes great importance in her life and you know, um, I think it's, it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, so I think that, you know, at the WNBA and everything like that, we're proud of her and we support, uh, all decisions she makes because, um, you know, like I said, there's other things in life than basketball. And, you know, sometimes you don't realize that until you're, you're away from it. You know, like I realized it while I was, uh, going through my rehab process. And, and she realized it uh, um, after she sat out her first year that, you know, she can make an impact in a a number of ways. And basketball is just one. Of
1: course, the Olympic tournament, uh, Coming up in about seven months, taking place in Tokyo this year. You're going to Serbia in the next few days after you play in Louisville this weekend. You're going to Serbia for the Olympic qualifying tournament. Even though you guys have already qualified, uh, you're required by FIBA to take part in this tournament. What do you guys hope to get out of it? Um, I mean, the
2: the biggest thing we hope to get out of it is obviously, you know, we we, want to win these games. Uh, because we we never want to lose. But it's nice to have some time with the team before, you know, Tokyo, because we're going to go right into WNBA and have only a little bit of time to get together right before the Olympics. Um, so to kind of build off of the chemistry that we already have, uh, for me personally, um, just taking advantage of getting some more um, in-game action um, and, and having every game be a little bit better uh, coming back from this injury. But uh, I'm excited for it. I'm looking forward to to playing, to being back with the team. You know, it's it's easy when you're with such a talented group and you just have to go out and play and, and not have to do too much.
1: Brianna, uh, about a year and a half ago, um, you did a story on E60 on ESPN with my colleague Julie Fowdy and a lot of people were very um, very moved by it. You, you bravely talked about your experience as a girl growing up in Syracuse being being abused sexually by a family member by by your uncle your mother's sister's husband and um, I'm wondering in the year and a half since then what, what kind of an impact do you think telling your story has made on other people
2: um, you know telling my story has made a, a bigger impact than, than I, I knew it would if that makes sense you know Um, When I published this story, I wasn't sure if I was going to get positive or negative feedback because you never know in the world of social media and that type of thing. Um, But overall, it was 100% positive across the board. And, you know, even still, like, um, I'll finish a game and people will be like, thank you for for speaking out about your story. You know, you helped me, you helped save my life. Um, Or if they had a family member who's been through a similar situation. And it just goes to show, like, You know, everybody's going through something, and I think sometimes that that gets overlooked. Everyone's going through or has gone through something, Um, and it's it's how you, you know, continue on from that. You know, sometimes life is really tough, and, um, you know, you can go through a hard thing and still do whatever you want to do
1: in life it Was extremely brave. And I know it did make an impact on a lot of people. Brianna Stewart looking this year for her second Olympic gold medal to go along with all those other trophies and accolades. Brianna, thank you so much for joining us here on the sporting life. I know how busy you
0: are right now.
2: Yeah. Thank you for having me.
0: This is the independence day weekend. Best of special edition of the sporting life.
1: Up next, a conversation from February with the comedian and documentarian, Adam Carolla. At the time we spoke, Carolla had just released a new film titled Uppity, a documentary about Willie T. Ribbs, the first black driver in the Indianapolis 500. Adam, uh, it's a fascinating story, and I-, I come away from watching the documentary with one thought, why don't more people know Willie T. Ribs' story? How-, how has it been obscured over the course of the last 30 years?
3: I don't know. I'm not sure how the zeitgeist works. I don't know. You know, we all know who Monica Lewinsky is, and we don't know who Willie D. Ribs is, and that's just kind of the—that's the cycle. That's the news cycle. But that's the reason you make a documentary.
1: Exactly. And, and this is his story from from the beginning. There's so many twists and turns. And the climax of the story, I hope I'm not giving anything away, is the qualification process in May 1991 for the Indy 500. But it was a struggle. By that point, he'd really been a professional racer for 14 years. And there's so many um, people whose paths he crosses in that time, people like bruce jenner and don king and bill cosby there's so much the story as a storyteller how did you try to maintain focus here
3: well you know we discussed you know having bill cosby and having caitlin jenner and like would that be a distraction uh so on and so forth but we we realized that You know, my motto with these docs is the story is the story. We're not really allowed to write the story. We have to tell the story. These are events that already existed. Uh, Caitlyn Jenner plays a part in a chapter of Willie's life, and so does Don King, and so does Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby plays a, a major part in Willie T's racing career, and... You know, documentaries aren't a popularity contest. It's not like, well, we don't like that guy now, so it can't be in the documentary. Uh, I mean, hell, half the documentaries are about serial killers. So I don't think it's about how popular you are with the neighbors. Uh, so my feeling is, is let's get Willie to tell a story. However it happened. that's how we're going to document it. And it's our job to craft it in a, in a very compelling way, but it's not our job to decide who's in and who's
1: out we're speaking with adam carolla he's the co-director of the new documentary you can see it on netflix uppity the willie t Ribbs story and um you've directed documentaries about racing before five years ago the paul newman story and paul newman is part of this story as well how did willie t ribs become a driver in the first place his
3: dad did a little amateur racing he was he grew up on Kind of a farm that had like mini bikes and go-karts and trucks and stuff. He could slide around the dirt roads of the farm. But mostly it was in him. Uh, he just wanted to go
1: fast. And, and he grew up with a neighbor who did racing as well. And then when he's, when he's in his early 20s, he goes off to England to compete in Formula 4 in 1977. What happens when Willie goes to England?
3: He may have gone... God, he may have been nineteen. Even he may have been late, uh, late, late teens. Instead of going to college, he goes off to race uh, Formula Ford in England. He wins, which is kind of a big deal. Which is, if you win Formula Ford, you know there's steps. It's, it's, it's you know, Formula Ford. Maybe it's Formula V. Maybe um, it goes to Formula Atlantic. Then maybe, maybe it goes to F one. Or maybe it goes from Formula Atlantic to Indy and then F1, or what have you. But it's a stepping stone. And if you win Formula Ford in England, it's kind of like being the highest recruited basketball player out of, out of high school. You know, it doesn't it doesn't mean you're going to be a pro, but it it, it certainly looks good. And uh, he came back to the United States, and nobody had any interest in him racing and unlike basketball racing takes money and it takes sponsorship and if you don't have the equipment you don't have the sponsorship you don't have the money you can't be competitive it doesn't matter how poor lebron james was when he was 17 or kobe bryant was when they were 17 they're still going to the show uh, because all you need is a pair of trunks and a jersey and automotive racing you need a lot of money and if you're not getting sponsorship, you're not, you're not racing. And he couldn't get sponsorship.
1: He has the success in Formula Ford, not Formula 4, as I said. There is a Formula 4 now and a Formula 3, but Formula Ford. Uh, and he comes back, and he can't get opportunities. One of the amazing things about his story is that he raced everything. Every He would drive anything, anywhere to get a chance to pursue his dream. Um, One thing he certainly demonstrated over the years, which not a lot of guys have done, is proficiency with basically anything on four wheels. Yeah,
3: and there's been some guys that have driven in, in, you know, different series. And, you know, for the most part, if a guy can drive, a guy can drive. But they don't normally hop from Formula Atlantic to the Trans Am series, which is a much, you know, totally different beast. Uh, The cars are... You know, one is a little open wheel sort of momentum car. The other is just a big brute. Um, I've driven some of Newman's Trans Am cars and I can tell you they're just big, beefy brutes and um, and they're heavy and they slide around and that's just a different animal altogether. But, you know, he didn't have the luxury of having a choice. He He had to take what he could
1: get. The thing that stands out as well from this documentary, Adam, is that he's a big personality. I mean, he he's a compelling character. He has a remarkable way with words. It must have been fun for you guys just to hear him tell his story because he does so in such a compelling, um, uh, narrative-driven way.
3: Yeah, when we went to work on the Newman doc, uh, Winning the Racing Life of Paul Newman, we went to work on that doc. We went to interview Willie because he was a part of Newman's world as well. Uh, as soon as we got done interviewing Willie, uh, we just announced this guy's a soundbite machine, and he's going to be our next doc. That was our that was our our humble take on on Willie. So, you know, when you make a doc. We made um, the 24-Hour War, which is Ford v. Ferrari, the documentary. Um, and then we made the uh, Carol Shelby doc, Shelby American, which is because we were making the Ford versus Ferrari doc. We, of course, we had a big chapter on, on Shelby in there. And so, like, one doc begats the next. So once we were three-quarters of the way done with Newman, we just started working on Uppity because we, we knew this guy was, was a compelling, his story was compelling, but he was compelling himself.
1: And your film builds to a climax with the 1991 Indianapolis 500. And at that time, six years after what happened uh, at the 85 race, where he decided he could not compete safely, he, he is struggling to qualify. Um, his car. He doesn't have the resources, although Bill Cosby is partially financing him. He doesn't have the resources to compete with the big teams. They're operating on a shoestring budget, but they are full of hope anyway that they're somehow going to get this done. But it's not working out until pretty much at the 11th hour, uh, Willie T is told that his team has a secret weapon. And this somehow uh, makes the difference. Can you tell us that story, Adam?
3: Yeah, he's blowing up engines. They're out of money. Uh, Cosby, Cosby got over his skis. Cosby said, I'm going to sponsor you, but don't worry. I'm in with Coke and Jell-O and you know, Kodak and everybody. And I'm going to just go to them and tell them to sponsor you. But if they don't, I'll sponsor you. But I don't think he thought he was really going to have to sponsor it. And uh, sure enough, all the major sponsors that Bill was in business with wouldn't cough up, wouldn't fork over any money. So now Bill was on the hook. So Bill said, "All right, you got two hundred fifty grand, and two hundred fifty grand is is not enough to feel the car really competently. You need backup cars and backup engines and." blah, blah, blah. They ended up blowing up engines, and it got down to the last day of qualifying, and one of the last qualifying qualifiers of the of the week, qualifying week, and they're pretty much going out at, you know, five in the afternoon, and that was it. Uh, they were on the bubble, and Willie was not able to find speed, and at some point, the race engineer said, you know, I have these magical tires, and, uh, we're going to put them on. And I, and it gave Willie somehow the confidence. I mean, he didn't say magical tires, but, a, you know, super set of super tires. And uh, it just gave Willie that extra that he needed.
1: Adam Carolla's new documentary, which he co-directed with Nate Adams, is Uppity, the Willie T. Rib story. You can download it at Chassis, chasy.com. You can also order the Blu-ray with all the extras. Also on the website, Adam's other motorsports documentaries, such as The 24-Hour War, are available. Adam, it's a pleasure having you back on The Sporting Life to talk about this fascinating film. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for taking the time.
0: This is the Independence Day Weekend Best of Special Edition of The Sporting Life.
1: Up next, our conversation from May with the former NFL MVP, Roger Craig. Roger, you played for one of the legendary college coaches of all time, Tom Osborne.
4: Oh, I love him. At Nebraska. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be talking to you today because of him. Really. And the reason why? <laughs> okay, my junior year, I was I was all big eight. That's when it was called the Big Eight Conference, right? <laughs> yep. You know, A long time and, ago. Uh, Nineteen seventy
1: nine.
4: Yep. And I was all Big 8, you know. Uh, you know, I was a junior. And you know, I'm going to my senior year, you know. Um, you know, I'm thinking that, wow, I get a chance, you know, be a Heisman candidate or something, you know. You know, I was preseason All-American. They promoted me up there to be a preseason All-American and all that. And then Mike Rozier came, came in. And um, Coach Osborne called me to his office. And he asked me, Roger, would you switch to fullback cuz you, you we 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 have this, this other running back coming in that could be a really potent, you know, backfield with you, with you two in the backfield together. I said, "Coach, if it's going to help us win, so be it. I'll play fullback." And that year we lost only one game and Tom Osborne, you know, I mean, he 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 just loved me to death when he, when I did that for him. And so but, well you know, I didn't know that John Gruden's father was a, was a professional uh, a scout for Bill Walsh. And so John Gruden, you know, who's the coach for the Raiders, his father told Bill Walsh what I did my senior year, being unselfish, not being self-centered, because most guys would, would transfer and go to another school, <laughs> you know, to do that, you know, and, and his senior year on top of that. So Bill Walsh drafted me as his first pick. In 1983 because you know he saw what I did and he knew that I, I was versatile that I could you know, could be a fullback and running back but he didn't know I could catch it though <laughs> he didn't know I could catch the ball and so when I heard that they were interested in me you know it, it was a Sports Illustrated where I read this that Bill Walsh is interested in drafting Roger Craig I'm like oh my gosh I gotta learn how to catch the ball because <laughs> in Nebraska we didn't run, we didn't catch any passes. We just ran the ball down your throat. So I, I caught a hundred passes a day, a hundred passes a day, just in case they drafted me <laughs> as the first pick, and they did, and I was prepared. Now, Roger Ir- Irving
1: Fryer must have caught a few passes, right? I yeah, mean, he
4: caught a couple. <laughs> 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 I mean talk about talent.
1: I mean with yourself and Rozier and Fryer all there at that time playing for Tom Osborne remarkable. And then you go you go to the NFL. We're speaking with Roger Craig, the former all-pro running back for the San Francisco 49ers, three-time Super Bowl champion, and you were one of the great dual threats ever coming out of the backfield in 1985. In that season, after you guys had won the Super Bowl the previous year, Uh you had 1,050 rushing yards. Yeah. You had 1,016 receiving yards with 92 receptions. Hey,
4: and guess guess what position I was playing?
1: You were a fullback. When I did that. You were a fullback. Fullback. Yeah.
4: (laughs) I led the whole NFL in receiving with 92 catches. I caught more pass than any receiver in the league and and I was a fullback you know on top of that you know I never I was on the field 98% of the time you know how hard it is to do 1000 1000 and you know th- to be on the field 98% of the time it sounds hard I never left the field I had to block <laughs> 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 so yeah so so the millennials are definitely um are chasing you know that 1000 1000 and I I I I really I'm happy for Christian McCaffrey because he just did it back in uh, November, this past November, and Marsha Fogg did it, you know, um, like well, 18 years after I did it. And Christian McCaffrey did it just about 19, 18 years after Marsha Fogg did it. So it's really tough to do. It's, nothing, it's, not, it's not hard. I mean, it, it, it's, it's not easy that you can just go out and do 1,000, 1,000. It's really a tough thing to do. A lot of athletes try to do it over the years and they couldn't they didn't succeed there's only been three and i was number one you know the first
1: one again we're speaking with roger craig the legendary running back for the 49ers and i mentioned the introduction when we started the show roger that you're arguably one of the best players not in the hall of fame <laughs> and, and you know you, you can have these I debates know. and it's, i know it's,
4: it's tough sometimes man it's really it's, it's really tough man you know but you know i, I look at it this way you know um you know, I, I I made impact in in the sport. You know, um, I, I created this, this this platform for the millennials that are chasing after the thousand thousand. And, and I, you know, people don't realize I did two thousand yards at two different positions. I did it at fullback and I did it at halfback in 1988. I, I, you know, I I had 1,500 yards rushing. I had 600 receiving. I had over two thousand yards in two different positions. No, they don't even talk about that. You know. And, and, and I was MVP of the NFC that year and Sports Illustrated player of the year. You know, so I was like, "Wait a minute, why 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 am I not going into this hall?" So, I think it's going to happen, you know, uh soon. I I, I think it would have happened this year, but this coronavirus kind of interrupted it a little bit, you know. You know, that's why they they, they didn't even have a, a a Hall of Fame, you know, induction this year. You know, so it's kinda, it's kind of it's kind of sad, you know, but but it's going to happen, and, 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 and I'm not going to worry about it. You know,
1: Roger, as one of the pillars of that 49ers dynasty that won those three Super Bowls under Bill Walsh, two under George Seifert. You know, the conversation, obviously, in the last few years, especially after last year when the uh, Patriots won their sixth Super Bowl, is that. Patriots dynasty greater than 49ers. And look, this is this is what we talk about in sports. <laughs> uh,
4: you know, I am not afraid I'm not afraid to admit that the Patriots have done some really impressive things. Playing and Tom Brady is one of my favorite guys that, that I love talking about. You know, he's from the, you know, the Bay Area, San Mateo. I'm good friends with his father. Tom Brady's played in 9 Super Bowls and won 6. Come on, you got to give him the best. Saying he's the best ever, you know. <laughs> if, if you're not giving him, if you're not giving him that, that kind of props to saying he's he's not the best ever, then you're jealous. You know, this guy is amazing.
1: I, you know what, I, I, I mean, I understand your point and I'm not disagreeing. I'm just surprised to be hearing that from a guy who, uh, you know, who was there with Joe Montana winning those Super Bowls.
4: Well, well, you know, like I say, you know, what the Joe did his thing. He started it all. He he that's what Tom he by what Joe Montana did that motivated Tom. You know? So but you think about it. Tom has played in 9 Super Bowls and won 6. That's pretty good. I mean, what quarterback has done that? You know? So you you, you, you can't you can't be biased and, and 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 just, you know, uh uh and be be you know jealous of someone. No, no I'm not jealous of Tom Brady. I'm I'm proud of Tom Brady. You know, like I said, I'm good friends with his father. You know, and 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 uh, and hopefully he'll, he'll he's going to do a good job in Tampa when he goes down there. I'm pretty sure he will because he's a leader. He's a he's a great leader. You know, and that and that they, they, they'll, they'll lead the, the, the team will definitely step up with with Tom Brady being on their team. And
1: we're speaking with Roger Craig, the NFL legend. Who uh, expects at some point to be in the Hall of Fame He's certainly got a very strong case Um, But we mentioned earlier You know, you played in college for Tom Osborne You played in the pros for Bill Walsh You know, two of the guys in the conversation Among the ten most uh, successful, iconic coaches In the history of this great game But uh, so different At least the way I I didn't know either of them I've been around each minimally I'm not sure I've been around either of them, actually. <laughs> I mean, other than covering a game. Yeah. Um, but but, how would you compare their approaches?
4: Well, they're on the same page because it's, it's not about – they coach that it's not about you. It's about the team. And I learned that in high school. My high school coach really taught me that. That's why Coach Osborne liked me so well. Because, you know, um, what I did in high school, I, I I did the same thing. I switched to fullback. And blocked, <laughs> you know, you know and, and so he liked that, you know, that, that he knew that I was a team guy. It's not about me. It's about the team. And that's my whole attitude that I took from high school to, to collegiate to the professionals and to, to corporate. I have the same mentality here at Tipco. I work at Tipco Software, and um, uh, I'm, I'm business development is my title. Um, I've been with Tipco for 20 years. You know, and, and we've been, and that's how I met Dick O'Donnell. Dick O'Donnell turned me on to Sports Thread. You know, and Dick O'Donnell was the guy I reported to when I first started at Tipco. You know, and, and so I learned all these things, and they, and and when you when you learn these type of things, it helps you later in life. You know, because it's you know you're not selfish, and I'm from the Midwest, and I keep my Midwest values with me. I'm humble. I'm, I'm always going to be a humble human being. I learned that from my brother. I learned it from Walter Payton. I learned it from a lot of people, man. That you know, that that kind of kind of helped my hand a little bit, you know. And so it's important in life, you know, to know your values. And, and, and I stick to my values. And that's what I know. The Hall of Fame will be coming up, you know. I, one day they'll get me in, but I don't cry about it. I don't talk about it. You know, and, and I'll just let them do, do it when they're ready for me.
0: This is the Independence Day Weekend Best of Special Edition of The Sporting Life.
1: Up next, a conversation from May with the Baseball Hall of Famer, Rod Carew. There are a lot of triumphs, uh, as you would expect. A lot of remarkable achievements, as many of us are aware. And there's a lot of hardship, too. Not only your uh, health issues in the last few years, but the death of your daughter when she was 17 from leukemia, your upbringing. You were born in Panama, uh, but raised mostly in New York. What was it like writing about these things, telling these stories, many of which uh, you know, were so painful to experience, of course?
5: Well, I think the, the most painful part was uh, about Michelle. You know, not so much about my upbringing and what I went through, but about, you know, Michelle, you know, she was just a young lady getting ready to go to nursing school. And and then she was um, diagnosed with uh, leukemia. But what surprised me about her was that she, she never cried a day. You know, she just said, Dad, you know, the doctors are going to clean me up and I'll be back out there again, you know, trying to help save someone's life. So. Uh, I I couldn't believe it. You know, I couldn't believe her reaction and the way she felt. Why? Well, you know, you think that a 17-year-old would start saying, you know, why me and, you know, I don't want to die and, and start crying and things like that. But she, she just, you know, she was strong. She said, you know, the doctors told her, you know, what she had. and They're going to clean her up and... Make her one again, and that's all she uh, really believed in at the time.
1: We're speaking with Rod Carew. His new book, a memoir, is "One Tough Out: Fighting Off Life's Curve Curveballs." Now, um, I think most people would agree there can't be anything um, more difficult, more traumatic than losing a child. How did you? Uh, how did you deal with the trauma at the time, Rod? You know.
5: I have faith, you know, and um, she was a great kid. I mean, everyone loved her. And then when the big man upstairs decided that it was her time, you know, um, I have so much faith in him that, you know, I never questioned him or asked why Michelle. You know, it was just her time, you know. And, you know, we all have our time scheduled from the day we were born. So, um, you know, I just went on and and did what she asked me to do is to stay involved and, you know, try and help kids. And I've had a golf tournament for the last 25 years that um, it's all about pediatric cancer. So um, and it's doing real, real good things for, for a lot of kids.
1: Right. You know, There's a lot of pain here, and it's not easy talking about things that are painful. So why was it so important for you to write this book? Well,
5: you know, God had given me a gift to to see a baseball and hit a baseball. And so I felt that, you know, um, put the book out. I'm doing God's work. I'm trying to save lives. And um, letting people be aware of heart disease. And it's the number one killer in this country. And I want people to take care of themselves, take care of their bodies, and take care of that little ticker that he gives us uh, inside of our body to live. So hopefully, you know, we'll get some uh, good results from it.
1: When you look back at your career in baseball and all the things things you did, one thing that's vivid for me, as I said, I'm 50 years old, so I was... Eight years old, the 1978 All Star game. And I remember it. I don't remember where it was played. The only thing I remember, I, I remember I was such a big baseball fan, and the All Star game, back then especially, was such a big deal. And that was the year after you'd hit 388. And uh, there were a lot of people hopeful that you would become the first since Williams to hit 400. And I remember in that game, what was it, two triples and two singles in the All Star game?
5: Yeah. You know, it's funny, I hit two triples, and on the second one, I was sliding into third base, and Pete Rose was playing third base, and he started yelling, you know, that's, tri- that's, that's a record, no one has ever done that before. <laughs> Pete would know. Yeah, he would know, you know, so I got up and he says, you know, congratulations, no one has ever done what you just did, you know, so Pete knows about things in baseball that a lot of us don't know, you know, but... Um, it was a great day for me.
1: Seventy-seven was a big year for you. The year before that, I mean, there were you know in the in the middle of um, what I guess I would call your heyday. You were at the height of your powers. Um, no one had hit three eighty-eight since Ted Williams uh, in the late fifties. No one had hit four hundred since Williams in nineteen forty-one. What was it like being locked in like that that year?
5: You know, it was a very uncanny year for me. It just seems that everything I hit found a hole. And what's crazy is that when I was at the plate, I would see that the infielders, middle infielders, shift a little bit. And then I'd hit the ball maybe, you know, two feet from where they were playing, that it would have been an out. But it went through for a base hit. So um, it was just crazy the baseball seemed like it was a, a beach ball <laughs> and it seemed like it was just floating up there and say, hit me, hit me, hit me, hit me where you want to, <laughs> you know? So, uh, it was a great, great season for me.
1: As I said, you were born in Panama in 1945, uh, but you were raised mostly in New York and you went to George Washington High School in Washington Heights, same high school that produced, uh, Manny Ramirez, two pretty good, uh, ball players. Um, How would you describe your childhood? Um, It was tough
5: because I was a very sick kid. You know, I had rheumatic fever when I was growing up, and I I almost died. Um, So my mom treated me um, with kid gloves. You know, my dad thought that I should be more of a man, you know, and so we didn't have a good relationship. And, um, you know, he drank a lot. and. Uh, I suffered the consequences. My mother and I suffered the consequences when he came home. But one thing that I had that kept me safe was baseball. And my mom encouraged me to play. You know, she says, you know, keep keep going, keep playing, and, and good things are going to happen. And I told her, I said, Mom, all I want to do is play in front of 50,000 people because listening to the radio... I couldn't believe that there were that many people in the stands uh, until I found out, you know, differently, but baseball saved me. You know, I almost killed my dad. uh, When he came home one night, he was really drunk and I was about 12 years old and he passed out on the bed and I said, here's my chance. And then my mom came running in and she says, don't forget baseball, and I stopped. I was just tired of the abuse and my mom being abused.
1: Rod, what, what do you remember? I mean, you're growing up in New York. It's, it's the 50s, and you've got um, Willie Mays playing for the Giants at the polo grounds just a couple of miles from where you're growing up. You've got Mickey Mantle In the Bronx, again, just over the river. Uh, You've got all those great players with the Dodgers out there. What what do you remember about uh, being a fan as a kid of New York baseball?
5: Well, you know, it's crazy. I had never gone into Yankee Stadium, never went into the polo grounds. And um, I played right outside of Yankee Stadium. Stadium on uh, McCombs Field.
0: Right
1: there, by the bridge.
5: Yeah, right by the bridge. I used to hit some balls up on top of that bridge. But um, I used to hear the the roar of the crowd, and I used to say to myself, you know, maybe one day I'll be playing in in this place, in in the house that Ruth built. And as a kid, you know, you just, you dream and you wonder. And I was fortunate enough to... um, To realize my dream.
1: When did you know that you had not an ordinary, but an extraordinary talent for the game?
5: Well, you know, every year players would ask, you know, what they're going to do to set goals. And, you know, sometimes those goals never were realized. And all I asked for was God to give me good health. And I was going to do good things for him. And that's, that's all I ever thought about. I was not playing for myself. I was playing for the Almighty. And he took me through a great, a great career. And I, I thanked him every day, and I still do.
1: Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Shapp and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.